Well, first off, I want to say, don't ever think you're taking my time. This isn't my time. This is his time. And I don't care how he leads this. Um, I don't care if I get here and he puts it on somebody else to speak. It's not about me. Okay, it's about him, and it's about him reaching each individual heart here. And that's it, period. Um, that was beautiful, that message. I've really enjoyed, first off, good morning. <laughs> How's everybody doing this morning? I've really enjoyed being here. I'm glad, I'm glad to be back. Um, I've enjoyed being liked by everyone here. Um, after what God's placed on my heart to share today, we'll see if that continues. <laughs> I hope so, but we will see. It's kind of tough. Before we get started, let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we, we come to you with, with gratitude in our hearts. Uh, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for this beautiful weather. We thank you for this time to gather together um, as your children to praise your great name, to bring you glory, to honor you, to draw close to you, to worship you because you are worthy, um, to give you all of our praises and to receive whatever message you have for each of us, even if it's a difficult one. pray that you would just guide us and direct us. I pray that you would rest your spirit upon us, um, surround us by your presence, fill us with your presence, and, and teach us your ways. Reveal any uncleanness within us, and help us to surrender it, and give it over to you, the one who makes all things clean. We give it all into your hands, and we trust in you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Is anyone here better at making messes than cleaning them up? Maybe that's just me. Yeah. Yeah. Professional? <laughs> Professional? Yeah, I love it. Yeah. I'm really good at making messes. The other day, we, uh, we made taco soup. And by that, I mean Stephanie made taco soup, and I ate it. <laughs> and we made it in this really big pot, really heavy cast iron pot. It is cast iron, right? Some sort of heavy metal, <laughs> whatever. It's in a big pot. Heck of a mess, right? So, it, like, the, the sink's just piled up with dishes, this pot, bowls in it. I filled it up with water to soak it, right, and left it. I <laughs> left it for the next day. And I work from home, so I have to stare at these messes all day. So as soon as I get a few minutes, I'm like, I've got to clean this up. So it's filled with this filthy water, right? And I'm like, I'm going to clean this. So I, I, I tip it over to dump the water into the sink so I can get the dishes out, so I can clean them. And I have it tilted over. And the water fills up the sink. This filthy water fills up halfway in the sink. So I start cleaning the other side of the sink. And this pot falls over upright splashes filthy water everywhere, everywhere. And I'm like, I should have just left it. I should have just left it. Where was that? And I'm, I'm standing there, and I can feel these filthy droplets <laughs> all over me, right? And I'm thinking to myself, this is a picture of my life. This right here. This is a picture of my life. When I try to do things my way, my way. When you, uh, when you have a mess on the floor, like I had, and you try to clean that mess up with dirty water and a filthy mop, what happens? Just spread it around, right? Just add to the mess and spread it around. That's what happens when we try to do things our way. So how do we clean up this mess we call life? 
What does God teach us? Last week, you heard a message from a friend of mine about an encounter between Jesus and a man named Zacchaeus. I love that account. It's one of my favorites. God has spoken to me through that account so much. Um, if you could see my other Bible, it's like every verse in that account is highlighted a different color. Notes all over. I've got a note-taking Bible, so it's loaded with notes. I spilled over notes in two different other notebooks. Like, I've got pages of notes everywhere on Zacchaeus. Like, he, he just... It's, it's, it's such a rich account. It really is when you dig into it. But as I, I was sitting here listening to Ronnie give his message on Zacchaeus, something jumped out at me that I'd never noticed before. And after I saw it, it seemed so obvious. But I just, I'd missed it, right, until God revealed it to me. I'm going to reread a part of that account. It's in Luke chapter 19, and I'm going to read starting in verse 5. And it says, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him gladly. I can dig into the Greek there, but the Greek word there means with, with rejoicing is what that means. He was rejoicing. He was exuberant. When the crowd saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He is gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. I'm going to pause there for just a second. It's important to understand the scene here. So at this point in the account, Zacchaeus has already climbed the sycamore tree to get a glimpse of Jesus. And the way things have worked out, Jesus' path lines right up to the sycamore tree. Because obviously Jesus intended to have an encounter with Zacchaeus that day. So it says Jesus looked up and saw Zacchaeus. That means Jesus doesn't have a microphone or a megaphone. Okay, so, so he's at the base of this sycamore tree and he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, I want to go to your house because we're going to hang out today. Zacchaeus can hear this, right? They're, they're this close to each other. So Zacchaeus scrambles down the tree and he starts leading Jesus to his house with rejoicing. Which means they're essentially side by side. They're very close at the very least. So you have Jesus here, you have Zacchaeus here leading him to his house, and you have the crowds all around. Crowds that had already been following Jesus. And they start to grumble, saying, we know that guy. Like, he defrauded me. Right? He stole money from me. They're like listing out all of his sins. And I want you to, to notice something here. Jesus is right here. Zacchaeus can hear it. Guess who else can? Jesus. He doesn't say a word. That jumped out at me like it was on, uh, like it was in neon. Jesus is listening to the crowds accusing Zacchaeus. Jesus doesn't say, "Oh no, you don't know Zacchaeus' heart." Jesus doesn't say, "Oh no, you're wrong. Zacchaeus is not a sinner." He doesn't defend Zacchaeus, and he doesn't defend the crowd. He says nothing. Nothing. And Zacchaeus rejoicing stops, like he's deflated. And I think it's because Zacchaeus acknowledged his sinfulness, because he's hearing these accusations, and Zacchaeus doesn't say, Lord, they're wrong, I didn't do that. Zacchaeus acknowledges, they're right, I did do that. And he turns to Jesus, and then he says, I'll make reconciliation. I'll go above and beyond. I'm going to make this right. 
I know I've been wrong. I'm a sinner. I'm going to make this right. That's when Jesus says, today salvation has come to your house. Interesting side note, by the way, Jesus' name in Hebrew is probably pronounced Yeshua. It literally means salvation. <laughs> he's not just saying salvation has come to this house. He's saying, I have. I am salvation and I've come to this house. But he waits until after Zacchaeus acknowledges his sinfulness and has a heart that's willing to make it right. That's repentance leading to salvation. Jesus waited until Zacchaeus acknowledged his sinfulness and made the, the, the proclamation that he had a heartfelt intention to make it right. And that's when Jesus opens his mouth and says, today salvation has come to this house. Repentance came first. Not after. Came first. Now Jesus sought Zacchaeus out. It's important to remember that too. Jesus created this encounter to give him the opportunity to repent. Jesus did the work leading up to it, but repentance came before Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. Now, God gives us a bucket of fresh water when we have a mess. He gives us a clean mop. He even shows us how to use it. Are we choosing to? Zacchaeus did. Are we? That's what repentance is, and it matters. The last time I, uh, I gave a sermon here, it was on Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God. And what I really focused on, if you'll recall, is the fiery, or are the fiery arrows that Satan shoots at us, right, when we're wearing the armor. And I highlighted how that can serve to show us where we have holes in our armor, our weak points. It was Satan shooting the arrows. So I have this, this, this revelation with Zacchaeus in the back of my mind, and then... God brings me to the book of Psalms, chapter 7. And he showed me something that I'm going to be honest, it stunned me. It's paradigm shifting, in my view. And it says this, Psalm 7, verse 12. If a man does not repent, if a man does not repent, he, as in God, will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. Verse 13, he has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Another way to translate that last verse is he tips his arrows with fire. God is shooting fiery arrows at the unrepentant here. That's what this verse is saying. God shoots them. Himself, not Satan. God. Those who refuse to repent, he fires fiery arrows at them to get their attention. And I had to ask myself, and I have to ask you, how often do we blame Satan for what God is doing? How often do we blame Satan for what God is doing? And in doing so, how often does that lead us to ignore how God is trying to correct us? Now, Satan did it. I must be on the right track. When really it's God doing it, showing you that you're not. You have a mess, and you're trying to clean it with a dirty mop. And he's trying to get your attention. 
So what is this unrepentance that Psalm 7 is warning us about? That's important also. Words are just words. Poorly defined, they can lead us in a lot of different directions. Scripture tells us there's a lot of places in Scripture that we can turn to to answer that question, but I want to turn to Jeremiah chapter 11. Jeremiah chapter 11. And I'm going to read through this whole account. And I'm going to let it largely speak for itself and challenge us greatly if we let it. And then I'm going to back up and I'm going to focus on a couple key points that are important. Now, Jeremiah is speaking to a people just as the historical background. He's speaking to his people Judah through Jeremiah, and they know God. They know his name. Um, They give him lip service, but they try to do things their way, not God's way. And God has been warning them for a very long time, and they've been ignoring him for just as long. And this is the point at which God's patience is wearing thin. And he says this, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Hear the words of this covenant, and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not heed the words of this covenant, which I commanded your forefathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice. And do according to all which I command you, so you shall be my people and I will be your God. Just pausing there. He's bringing a curse for disobedience. Going to wind back to that in a minute, but that's important. Remember that. He brings a curse for disobeying his law. And he continues in verse 6. And the Lord said to me, proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers in the day that I brought them up from the land of Egypt, even to this day, warning persistently, saying, Listen to my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked each one in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, I brought on them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. I'm going to continue. Then the Lord said to me, a conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their ancestors who refuse to hear my words, and they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Just a side note, even when we claim to serve God, when we attempt to serve him in ways that the pagans do, or in disobedience, he ascribes that to worshiping other gods. He does this repeatedly in Scripture. He does not count that as worshiping him. 
we have never, ever, at any point in Scripture, been given the authorization to worship him our way, to do things our way. Never. And he's been trying to remind his people of that here, and they're not listening, and things get very harsh. And then he ends with this, and it gets a bit terrifying. Therefore, because of all this, because of all this willful disobedience, because of your unwillingness to hear my voice, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing disaster on them, which they will not be able to escape, though they will cry to me, yet I will not listen to them. Whoa. Whoa. He's saying that he'll refuse to even hear their prayer because they refuse to repent his way. There's a couple things that I want to focus on here as it serves to answer our question, how do we clean up this mess we call life? Were they incapable of obeying according to what God himself says here? No. No. Repeatedly, he makes it clear the issue was they were refusing to obey. Refusing. They were giving themselves over to the stubbornness of their own evil heart, he says. Now, this is going to bite. It bit me when he revealed it to me years ago. That's not what the church tends to teach. Mainstream church doctrine will tell you that you are incapable of obeying him. That's not what God says. God says the issue is people refuse to obey him. Not that they're incapable. That's an excuse. That's an excuse. And it's one that scripture does not authorize. And the second biting point here, what is the curse? According to this passage, what's the curse? It's what God inflicts when people refuse to obey. The curse is the fiery arrow that God shoots upon those who are unrepentant. The curse of the law is the penalty for disobeying it. But too often, what church teaches us what mainstream doctrine teaches us is that the law itself is a curse. As if what God said with his own mouth was something vile that should be cast aside. As if his commands and expectations were the problem. That's not what God says. God says, again, the problem is we're refusing to obey, and because we refuse to obey, he inflicts a curse to get the attention of the people disobeying. It's his fiery arrow that Satan didn't fire. Satan may have tempted us to disobey because he knew that when we did and we refused to repent, God would shoot the arrow because he has to, because he's holy. He's gracious, he's merciful, he's loving, he's kind, but he is also holy. He does not cease to be holy. He does not relinquish his holiness to make space for our disobedience. That's challenging. That's a bit paradigm shifting. But it's what God says. And at some point, we have to ask ourselves, if what God says disagrees with what we've been traditionally taught, who are we going to believe?
Are we going to believe a pastor, a theologian, a Bible school teacher, a denomination, or are we going to believe God, who's above all of it? People of Judah here chose to believe their ancestors, the false prophets, the conspirators. I would caution us not to follow in their footsteps. Else we might find ourselves subject to what he says in verse 11. I'll read that again. Behold, I'm bringing disaster on them which they will not be able to escape, though they will cry to me. I will not listen to them. I want you to think about something. Why would Jesus free us from a curse inflicted upon us for disobedience only to authorize the same sort of disobedience that brought the curse to begin with? Why would he do that? That's not what he did for Zacchaeus. He didn't tell Zacchaeus it's okay to continue defrauding people. He waited until Zacchaeus acknowledged his sinfulness, then said, today salvation's come to this house. He's essentially telling Zacchaeus, I'll help you clean this mess up. I will. But you have to acknowledge it's a mess that I don't approve of. And we have to do the same. And I know what the retort would often be, because I've heard it. And I used to say it myself. And I used to believe it. That's the old covenant. All that stuff in Jeremiah, that's great. There's some principles I could apply, but that's the old covenant. I really don't have to pay attention to that. What does Jesus say? What would Jesus say to that? I'm going to read a short passage from Matthew chapter 5 because he tells us very explicitly. I'll be reading Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, for those following along. Do not think. Do not think. Don't even imagine that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. I'm going to pause there. Because the way this tends to be handled is the word fulfill is treated as if it means abolish. So the way that we tend to handle his words here is like Jesus saying, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to abolish it. That's not what fulfill means here. In the Greek, that's plerau. Plerau. And it literally means to bring to fullness. It's like if you had a cup that was half full of water and you filled it the rest of the way to the brim, that's to plerau the cup. He's saying, I came to bring everything to a complete fullness. Not to do away with what was already in the cup, to bring it to fullness. That's what he's saying. Continuing, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Has the earth passed? Has heaven passed away? Has Jesus returned? So this hasn't been fulfilled yet. Here's the biting part, the inescapable part. Verse 19, whoever then 
annuls one of the least of these commandments, meaning the commandments in the law, and teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I want you to notice something important there. That's future context. Shall be. He's talking judgment seat. He's saying in the future, in the new covenant, after the second coming, at the judgment seat, whoever has been found to be annulling even the least of the commandments from the law and teaching others to do the same, they'll be considered least in the kingdom. They'll be there, but as Paul says, it'll be like one escaping through the flames. But if they're found to have been honoring his expectations, honoring those commandments, teaching others to do the same, they'll be considered great in the kingdom at the future judgment seat. This is Jesus talking. Guys, I'm going to tell you something. This is so inescapable that there's actually a heresy right now that I have seen proclaimed that we don't have to listen to Jesus anymore because he was talking the Old Covenant. Because we don't like what Jesus himself teaches. Now we have people out here saying that we don't even have to listen to him. How far will our disobedience and rebellion take us? At some point, we have to just agree with what Scripture is telling us, with what our Messiah is telling us, with what our Father is telling us. That He gives us commands and expectations for a reason, and it's time for us to stop looking for excuses to cast them aside. Because He takes this seriously. He calls this rebellion. That's what Jesus says about the law. We cast off. Are we applying this? Or are we trying to clean up our mess with a filthy mop? I'll end with this. A pastor friend of mine, uh, not long ago, I listened to him give a sermon, and he, he told a story. And he said there was a time that he was preaching on Matthew 18. And it's the, it's, it's the account when Jesus is talking about if, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it aside because it'd be better to go into heaven with one eye than to go into hell with both. Very famous. And he said after he was done preaching that sermon, uh, one of the members of the worship team pulled him aside and asked him, he's like, Cole, do you, uh, do you think that Jesus was being literal there? Or was that just sort of like symbolism? Cole said he responded, he's like, you know, I could answer that question, because it does have an answer, but here's the real problem. You're asking me this question because the truth is, you don't like what you think Jesus is saying, and you're looking for an opt-out clause. You're hoping that if you can hyper-spiritualize Jesus' words, you don't really have to apply it. You're looking for an opt-out clause. Let me reread that one verse from Jeremiah. Verses 9 and 10. A conspiracy. A conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their ancestors who refused to hear my words, and they have gone after other gods. 
People, I worry this is us. I worry that we're seeking opt-out clauses, calling it good doctrine. I worry that we're using dirty mops to clean up our mess. And we need to repent. Not our way. His way. We need to repent. Will you pray with me? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day. We thank you for your goodness and for your mercy. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for your willingness to persistently warn us again and again when we're going a direction that is not good. Only love would drive you to do that. We know that your nature is love, but we also acknowledge that your nature is holy, as you define it. I pray that we would receive your warning like Zacchaeus did. I pray that I would receive your warning like Zacchaeus did. There is so much uncleanness in my heart and our hearts. And I pray that each one of us is given the gift to just turn to you and say, Lord, we have made a mess of things. We have sinned. We have refused to hear your voice when we disagreed with it. And we're begging you. Give us the gift of a clean mop. Help us to make things right. Help us to clean up this mess. Thank you for doing so. We trust in you. We give glory to you. We acknowledge your great name, and we seek to serve you with a whole and purified heart. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.